do want to move Sorry, on. something's not right. Wait a few minutes and try setting up again. You can also try <laughs> unplugging your... I'm going to fix that issue because my internet went out for a second there. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the OSINT Bunker podcast. Uh, this week, you've got myself, uh, OSINT Technical, and uh, Jordan from Air Intel, um, who's back with us after a brief uh, time away. Indeed, I have returned. And, and it week... is great to have you back. Indeed, it is. And this week, we're going to be uh, discussing Afghanistan. Um, we're going to be discussing a lot of the stuff that's going on in the Indo-Pacific as well as some of the uh, surprise news in the last week or so around uh, AUKUS. Um, but before we go any further, we just want to um, say, obviously we, the plan with Season 2 was that we were going to have a guest speaker on each episode. Um, unfortunately this week that has not worked out. Um, our planned guest... Uh, had to pull out due to some uh, personal circumstances fairly last minute and despite our best efforts we weren't able to find someone to replace them on uh, such short notice um, so you just have the pleasure of the three of us this week yeah and sort of you know disappointed that I couldn't bring on some uh, individuals to talk about Asia Pacific but hey we're you know we're, we're good enough aren't we gonna, gonna gonna bully the rest of us aren't you there John <laughs> are we not good enough for the listeners no but um more seriously um you know there a lot not a lot has happened in the past week um but honestly to to, to be honest um with with the whole asia pacific situation it's really only one announcement that sort of cascaded into this entire sort of series of events and and you know only things have been only been done on paper and it's it's actually somewhat amusing to um see the entire situation sort of play out the way it has. Of course, the underlying events behind why, you know, things have played out the way they have are, are obviously concerning um, and, and definitely tell us sort of, or give us an indication of how bad the situation is. But um, that's, it's, it's obviously things have only happened on paper so far. Indeed. And, and I, I think to be fair, it's not just that as well. Obviously, with everything in Afghanistan now having kind of wound down to a certain extent, the focus of a lot of the world now is kind of on um, the next sort of major potential conflict. And I think it's fair to say that China has been very vocal in the last few months, um, more and more aggressively so, and we've seen a lot more uh, activity from their military, a lot more exercises, a lot more... Uh, you know, test launches and, and flights into uh, Taiwanese airspace, for example. So I think it's fair to say that we, we've, we've been seeing a ramping up in the Indo-Pacific sort of space for a while, but the announcement by the US, Australia and the United Kingdom uh, in the last week has, has certainly sort of brought that into focus for everyone else. Yeah, and definitely um, I, the agreement was more... Uh, how do I put this in the best way? The the existing Australian deal with France to provide diesel electric submarines was um, not flawed, but more fit the Australian um, intended political use case of this yeah. non nuclear solution that was still possible to go well, very far from home. Like just look at the like if you're looking at like Australia's non nuclear thing, for example, because they've gone nuclear, they now can't get into New Zealand waters, for example. Yes, I mean they do operate their subs out of uh, the north of the country, but still, it's it definitely has caused some chafing, at least, or it will cause chafing once the the subs actually go into service. Mm. Um, but th those subs, they they fit a very unique use case, which was this sort of Australia is in this isolated position where any sub activity actually sort of has to happen far from home in order to support um, the sea lanes that supply Australia. Um, this nuclear deal allows them uh, to, to operate far longer um, on station for further away from the country. Um, and, and the big thing from that is it's 
less directly controlling and patrolling their seed lanes and more long-term potentially offensive operations in places like the South China Sea and, you know, near Taiwan. And it's this sort of changing of the abilities of the Australian um, Navy to operate further away from home. Um, And the U.S. and Britain definitely wanted to take advantage of it and sort of change the skill set of the Australian Navy in that case. But I think, like, the well, the sub-dealers, obviously, is, like, because it's sort of the first part of the agreement, it's been seen as, it's kind of, people are saying the whole agreement is through purely a sub-led, the submarine project, rather than actually the AUKUS agreement as actually fit wider technology share in, like, mm-hmm. long-range strikes, as it was mentioned, as in, this is obviously the first and obviously probably arguably going to be the biggest part of it, but the future potential of the agreement is huge in terms of what they're what they're going to be able to do with a co- with their combined technologies yeah yeah and and of course the australian material is definitely one of the big assets in the deal as well yeah and and like you say jordan it's worth mentioning that it's not just the you know the submarines um obviously at the moment you we've seen in recent months uh, decisions by the uk military for example regarding purchase of certain platforms particularly aircraft have been somewhat influenced by what australia is operating um for example we've we've seen obviously the the order for the e7 wedge tail um all three of the countries that we've mentioned operate the p8 poseidon um and i understand lockheed is currently looking at an offering of a variation of the the UK and Australia's Voyager tankers um, for the US military uh, in light of the, the struggles that have been going on with the, the uh, Pegasus project. You've also got the wing, the, the wing man, the unmanned wingmanned system that's on offer that Australia is introducing and also the UK is eventually going to introduce. Mm, yeah, exactly. Yeah, Boeing Australia has made a lot of progress on unmanned systems and especially unmanned combat systems. Um, and they, of course, have been a bit more open than, of course, some of the U.S. development, but they, they've definitely made very, very large strides um, in that front. I think, additionally, though, the, the uh, Voyager tanker deal was a very unique one, um, as it sort of indicates the U.S. need to uh, acquire um, these uh, platforms quicker than was going to happen with something like the KC-46 or whatever future tanker replacement program. Um, was going to be. So I, I believe there's sort of this thinking within the U.S. defense community that there needs to be a quicker acquisition and a quicker procurement process and um, and production process for a lot of these weapon systems and, and assets, um, which indicates, you know, and reflects this concern of a, you know, potential conflict in the near future that I think a lot of um, different defense figures are are very concerned about. Yeah, and the the thing with the Voyager as well that's interesting is obviously it was once offered to the US. Um, this this was quite a number of years ago when uh, when the US was trying to replace the older KC-135E Strato tankers, um, and it was one of the two competing designs at the time, um, but was ultimately rejected uh, from that competition. So yeah, that and that was. was uh... <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's interesting to see that the Americans have now kind of turned around and actually said, well, hang on, maybe we should consider it again. I think it's as time's gone on, with the popularity of the A330 MR, MRTT, given the fact that the, the wide adoption by NATO as a multinational fleet tanker has probably influenced that decision. And, and additionally, um, Boeing obviously put pressure on the US government, on the lobby, no doubt. in order to acquire the, the, the KC-46. Um, and that lobbying could only hide the, you know, extreme or cover for the extreme issues of the program for so long before um, Lockheed believed they had an opening to represent the um, the Voyager program to the U.S. And I'm assuming that Lockheed hasn't done this, you know, just randomly. There obviously was, you know, studies done and sort of Lockheed understands the political situation and may believe that this is the time that they can actually present and get the aircraft acquired. Definitely, but I mean, like, it really depends. If this is what they're going to offer, then obviously, if this is offered as a new tanker, then 
what are other companies going to offer? Are Boeing going to come back with a revised KC-46 or just offer more KC-46s? Yeah, I think the issue with the KC-46 right now is the speed of production. Obviously, I believe there's sort of the general belief that the Voyager would be able to be acquired and integrated into the U.S. military quicker um, than something like the KC-46. Though, granted, there are some small changes that probably will be made to whatever final presentation, if it gets accepted, um, there there will probably be changes. But um, I, I think there's this general belief that Boeing is sort of um, unable to provide the KC-46 as quickly as it needs to be you know, acquired. <clears throat> and it's worth saying as well, the KC-46 hasn't been particularly successful on the export market compared to the Voyager. And that that's something they have to bear in mind as well, because as you say, that the production rate would be affected for the US if there were a significant number of exports, but that that's not the problem they've got with the KC-46. They haven't it got that. Does, it sucks. Um, so it, it's, yeah, I, I, as you say, it's very, very understandable that the US is looking at other options. Um, I mean, they've always operated a, a, a mixed fleet of tankers, haven't they? At, at the minute, we've obviously got uh, KC-135 Strato tankers, they've got the KC-10 extenders, um, and then obviously the few KC-46 Pegasus. KC-130s as well. Yeah, and, and yeah. KC-130s as well. Yeah. So if, if the the Voyager were to be acquired, the US would be operating, what, five, six different five, tanker five, platforms? Well, yeah. yeah, include buddy stores on the FA-18, um, and you're up to seven different tanker platforms. Um, which would be the most, I think, uh, ever, right? Um, no, it would tie for, I believe, the early 80s when the A7 could also do buddy stores as well. But, I mean, that just comes down to the, you know, the... I think the idea that the U.S. military needs to diversify um, its acquisitions because um, devoting everything to this single tanker replacement obviously caused some fairly large issues um you know with these these single platform issues like with the odd decision to go for some sort of augmented reality um refueling boom operator position and um uh, other issues with cargo carrying capacity and passenger capacity that just it, these issues just snowballed into this massive um just i, I don't know a great way to put it just this massive pile of problems that severely crippled the ability of the tanker to actually operate and to be integrated into the military. And it'll be interesting to see as well what effect the Kabul airlift has had on sort of tanker planning and, and, and sort of strategic air movement planning uh, in general. Well, I mean, the KC-135 has definitely proved itself. The fact that they used it to facilitate with C-17s going into Afghanistan and coming out again, mm. a huge... The KC-135 proved itself with getting with being a large enough platform to get lots of troops into the country and get them out and also help transport the refugees back from the various bases back to America as well. Yeah, and obviously we saw a, a fairly significant usage of the KC-10 extenders out there as well for sort of more for the, raw, the, the refueling side of things than the actual sort of personnel movement. Um, and obviously, I'm I'm sure, no doubt, there were there were KC-130s on the ground as well that were carrying out the evacuation um, alongside the C-17s because of their obviously short takeoff uh, capabilities as well. Yeah, and that's definitely um, sort of a, a platform capacity question of does the KC-135 have you know as much capacity as the KC-10? The KC-10 is sort of aging out of the fleet just because. You know, obviously, it's a platform that really you can't keep flying forever, um, and so it's this this problem of if the KC forty six can't properly replace, you know, the KC ten or the KC one thirty five, then there's going to be a serious capacity shortage um, for for a lot of operations. And of course, the Kabul airlift was one where, um, because of the nature of how the C seventeens had to fly in, they immediately had to hook up with the tanker after leaving. Um, and it was just this, you know, question of we need something with enhanced capacity that can actually um, 
that, that can actually compete and, and can provide this, you know, enhanced tanker um, a, a solution. And the main thing is that, I mean, the U.S. Air Force, the U.S. Navy, all they all operate off tanking capacity. Hmm. Um, and the U.S. uses tankers more than any other nation for operations. And so it, it's sort of this, you know, it, it's this urgent need that needs to be filled and obviously sort of cycles back to that question of, you know, if operating against China or operating in some sort of South China Sea, you know, denied situation where you aren't able to use airfield to the Philippines or even potentially, um, you know, uh, Japan, where Japanese airfield facilities are also denied, like in Okinawa, um, that the need for tankers grows even larger and the need for long range tankers as well um, continues to be a bigger and bigger issue. And as the KC-46 isn't able to fill that role, you're going to see, of course, presentations like the Voyager move in and be um, more competitive just because they're able to, you know, uh, gear up and create more uh, tanker capacity as quickly as possible. Yeah, and, that, and that's something that Airbus has gotten fairly good at as well, because it's worth mentioning, it's not just Voyager. Um, a lot of the European operators of the Atlas, for example, the A400M Atlas, have been looking at the tanker capabilities of that aircraft. Well, at the at the minute, the French have got theirs cleared for um, helicopter refueling, and I know that for a fact. Yeah. And I know the Germans have got theirs refueling, and it was doing trials with um, the Swedish um, Grippens this week, I believe the Germans were. Mm. And and that's potentially something that the UK could look into in the future as well. The UK's ones would have to be purely helicopter refueling as they could not refuel anything fixed wing with their aircraft with the four hundred. Yeah, that that would obviously present an issue. Uh, but that's that's definitely a, a question that they're gonna have to take in mind as more countries attempt to acquire the Voyager platform. Um and I guess we'll see sort of um into the near future what type of capacity or production capacity um Airbus is able to keep up with, which is certainly going to be an important thing. Um I think a lot of people have sort of posed the question of, you know, if there is a hot war, and this is, you know, still an if question, not a when, mm. um, but but may become a, a when question, you know, as as tensions continue to raise, um, uh, you know, the production abilities of the West um, versus China to produce, to acquire, and then to field um, uh, advanced systems um, in some sort of hot war where there's a high rate of attrition. Um, that is that it's a super big question um, facing uh, Western countries right now, um, where China is able to uh, gear up production of stuff very quickly, um, and you know that that's certainly a potential risk in any sort of conflict. Yeah, and and, and I think it's fair to say um, that the Chinese uh, transport fleet has been probably one of the most overlooked um, aspects of their military growth. Um, but it, it's probably one of the more astonishing sides of things as well. They pretty much have their own version of every Western uh, military transport aircraft at this point, don't they? Um, but they've, they've got their own version of the C-17, um, they've got their own version of the Atlas, um, they've got their own tankers and, and you know heavy lift helicopters as well at this point. Yeah, they're, they're mostly based on designs from other nations, but once they continue to increase their own domestic, you know, design and production capabilities, it's, it, it is a real risk um, to, to other countries, unlike a hot conflict with Russia, where, you know, pretty much anything you destroy in the Russian arsenal, it's going to be pretty slow to be replaced, um, if it can even be replaced at all, versus um, China, where there's that real risk of, of them being able to replace wartime losses fairly quickly. Um, and it's just, it's one of those hot war issues, um, which is seemingly, you know, a higher and higher risk as, as time goes on. And of course, again, a reason why AUKUS was created is basically in order to utilize the potential production capability, manpower and material offered by Australia, which is the, you know, closest, not Western ally, but the, the closest, um, large country in the region that can actually operate with western countries um and so that's going to be a big thing in the near future as um 
either AUKUS increases in capability or, you know, develops deeper uh, links and Australia is able to acquire and field more weapon systems offered by um, the US and the UK. Yeah, and it, it would be nice to see AUKUS expand beyond just the, the, the three countries and, and, and for perhaps a, a form of the agreement to introduce other countries in the region. Um, well, I think Auk- I think AUKUS is perfectly positioned to integrate and work with the quad given the fact that already the united states and australia are members of that yeah Yeah, just put india in it already um i know indian representatives uh will actually be in dc for a quad or is it new york it's in the u.s for a quad meeting um this upcoming week um so we may see some progress on that especially as China puts more pressure on India, um, both militarily and economically. We see more tension sort of ratchet up between the two countries, um, which does leave this big opportunity for the US, the UK, and um, other countries to sort of swoop in and develop relations. We saw France do that um, with a meeting with uh, Austria or with um, Indian uh, representatives this week, um, this past week. Um, and, and so we're probably going to see that continue to develop in the future as. India becomes this, you know, not dyad per se, but but this opposing force to the Chinese influence in the region. And then while I mentioned France there, I think we should probably at this point pivot to the, um, not amusing. I won't say amusing because that would be offensive, but the, the interesting meltdown by France over... Uh, the loss of the naval group contract with us or not contract, but um, agreement with Australia to develop uh, diesel electric long range submarines. I mean, I get, I get why France are angry. And I mean, like every country would be entitled and perfectly have the right to be angry and upset at losing the deal, losing the deal. But purely from my perspective, I don't think the recalling of the ambassadors is actually helpful to the situation. Oh, not, it's not just that, but they're they're going after everyone. They're going after Switzerland. They're, you know, saying that the UK has become a puppet of the US, which, you know, is definitely some 1960s level rhetoric there. Mm. Um, but it's just, it's this entire sort of, you know, it, I at this point, look, I've talked with some people and the seeming conclusion is that this is currently political theater by Macron in order to... Um, drive up domestic support uh, in, in the upcoming close to election time. Yeah. yeah, when when his number one potential opposition is you know a very nationalist figure, um, and so we're definitely you know this is most likely a result of of that. Um, but you know even something like that can cause longer term damage, um, especially you know because public statements have weight um, and can potentially cause diplomatic. Uh, fractures and that that's certainly a risk um i I think it's fair to say it's not been the whole of you know sort of the 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 french politics and 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 sort of companies that have been just outlandish with some of their responses i think it's fair to say that the the most reasonable uh reaction that i've seen to the to, to the uh, the loss of the contract actually came from the French firm Naval Group's own Twitter um, pretty much the day after the, the AUKUS announcement. Um, their sort of response was one of, you know, sadness at losing the contract, but a recognition that, you know, that that's not the end of the world and that the, you know, the, the agreement and the understanding between France and Australia is still there and so on. Whereas you've then had politicians and various other figures turning around and effectively almost making it sound like France has been, you know, stabbed in the back or or left on its own in some sort of wild disaster. Yeah, whereas this was, you know, uh, and I I believe the the naval group... um, acceptance of the situation was uh, the most to understand because they, they knew what, what had happened. I mean, they, they weren't able to present the original conditions of a deal. Um, they, they had outbid other countries like Japan um, and Germany over uh, on, the, on the initial contract um, 
because they were able to offer, you know, a $50 billion deal with 90%, you know, of the stuff produced domestically in Australia. And then they come back this year with a, a final deal that after, you know, years of talking with the Australian government, trying to work out, you know, an appropriate platform, they come back and offer this $90 billion deal with, you know, a non-binding agreement to produce up to 50% of the, um, of the sub domestically in Australia. And so, you know, coming back with an agreement like that definitely um, hurt Australia, I, I believe, um, and caused, and sort of drove them to sort of look for these other potential options. And they, they settled on this fairly extreme one, which was, you know, developing a nuclear powered submarine. Um, and sort of that's, that's how bad that second deal was um, with Naval Group was that, you know, Australia, decided to go nuclear mm. not weapons propulsion there's a huge difference and I, I don't know if we want to discuss briefly as well while we're on the topic of, of France and Australia and, and, and this uh, submarine situation um, obviously the announcement came somewhat as a surprise to all of us uh, on the evening it was announced but as as much as 24 hours earlier um, there were indications of it in Australian uh, media um, and I think we all kind of took what we were reading to start with with a, a pinch of salt because it did seem a little bit out there and a little bit of a a shock at the time I don't know if you guys want to comment further on that well, cause it got... I mean it was pretty much with any deal like that you know there's going to be a certain amount of leaking beforehand and maybe not even leaking so much as, you know, uh, people putting out, you know, bits of information in order to lead the story in the right direction. Um, because occasionally when you get some sort of deals like that, um, it's easier to front load it through the press than to actually have the thing announced and have there, you know, just be sort of this nebulous speculation. Um, because if basically if the preceding few days, the the nebulous speculation was, potential nuclear deal between, you know, Australia, the UK, and the US, it would have been a whole lot worse than um, the news that came out, with, which was nuclear-powered submarines versus, you know, some nebulous nuclear agreement. Um, and I, you know, I if I were a betting person, I would, I'd be willing to bet that the information was um, not officially released, but but unofficially leaked. And and throughout the announcement on, on that night, that all three... Uh, national leaders were very, very, very careful to emphasise that the submarines would be nuclear powered, but not armed with nuclear weapons. Um, yes, very, very, very clear about that. Um, which you know is definitely important and necessary, especially with a deal of that caliber. Um, though, of course, Chinese tabloids and um, more reactionary members of the Chinese press, who, of course, pretty much always beat the war drums, definitely um, did not draw upon that distinction as much as I think the US and Australia and the UK hoped. Russian elections, hey, let's talk about that for a second, because that's definitely not going to take too long. The polls aren't back, but it, it, we're, it's pretty clear who's going to win. Um, it's it's going to be Putin and his party. Um, there were some pretty clear examples of ballot stuffing we saw. Um, and, you know, just general shenanigans related to the election. But it, it's nothing new. Honestly, the last two or three elections in Russia have been fairly clearly shams. And, um, you know, Putin has this wide base of support, but it can never hurt to, uh, you know, jimmy the results and, and make sure you have that broad mandate or at least a perceived broad mandate to do whatever you want. But, you know, we know the result. Putin won. Yeah, and, and, and that's now what he's coming on now for 25 years in office or something like that? I'm, I'm trying uh, to remember exactly when he's... Well, it depends whether or not um, you include that period where he switched over to... Um, to being prime minister. Uh, to being prime minister and, and Medvedev became uh, president. So whether or not you include that, which he was, you know, he was de facto... Um, president well uh Medvedev was de jure um president so it was this sort of this this whole situation 
Um, but he changed the constitution, so he doesn't have to do that again. Um, but, you know, it, it's this whole situation of, of Putin has this very strong power base within Russia, whether or not it's legitimate or illegitimate, that doesn't really matter. He can do whatever he wants to. Um, and, you know, that's definitely a, a big question and, and uh, a potential, I mean, it's not a concern. It's, it's just a known factor, you know. Putin gets to operate in the way that he wants to. Hmm. Period. End of story. There's nothing else to talk about on that. Um, it's just, it, it's this sort of very set, you know, reality of the situation. There's really nothing else that can even be talked about. Oh, wait, Afghanistan. Um, I think definitely the first thing to talk about with uh, Afghanistan is definitely... Obviously, the evacuation, um, the the end result was fairly successful. Um, it was chaotic. There there was, you know, a huge number of people left behind, not just U.S. and Western citizens, but um, the, the current situation in Afghanistan has evolved. Um, so the Western powers are now out. Um, the main conduit between... Um, Afghanistan in the West is Qatar. It's going to remain to be Qatar um, and will be into the future. Um, they certainly have an in with the Afghan government, who we saw appointed last week. Um, a very interesting set of individuals, if I don't say so. Um, definitely the more extreme networks won out. The Haqqani network is the leading faction in the Taliban government right now, period, end of story. It's very, very clear that they are the ones with the power right now. Mm. Um, and the big thing with that is, A, we're going to see a super conservative Afghan government. Um, and the members who we saw appointed are all very conservative clerics. A number of them are from the previous Afghan government. And a very large portion of them fought uh, in the conflict uh, over the last 20 years. So that's something that we... Those are the parties that we saw won out, and, and those are the guys who are now, and I say guys because it's, again, an all-male cabinet, um, and those are the guys we definitely saw won out in this, you know, competition, in this power struggle. There were some factions who were the ones who pushed for some hardcore peace or peace um, at the Qatar um, negotiations, you know, with some sort of transitory government with the uh, previous Afghan government. Um, those guys have mostly been pushed to the side. Um, a few still have roles, but they're, again, they're mostly on the sidelines right now. Mm -hmm. um, the ISIS has, de or ISIS-K has definitely um, put together a resurgence, um, uh, basically all over the sort of that central Kabul, um, Jalalabad sort of uh, corridor. Um, they, they have a very, very large presence and they are, um, the reduced pressure by ISAF forces and by Afghan government forces against them has definitely allowed them some wiggle room, and they are having a lot of ease in operating against the Taliban. They've already committed several attacks that have killed a number of civilians, and frankly, I expect them to continue, and I expect them to continue to be effective. Um, it's going to be very hard for the Taliban government to put this insurgency down um, in any reasonable length of time. Um, and on top of that, you know, it's obviously going to cause some pressure as, as the Afghan people sort of expected the whole end of the conflict to be the end of the conflict. And, you know, as that reality sort of steps or, you know, sort of starts to evolve that that won't happen, we're, we're definitely going to see some pressure by the Afghan people against the Taliban government, though that's probably not going to do anything in the, you know, in, in the entire situation as a whole. Um but that's that's pretty much where things stand in Afghanistan right now. Um, reverting to this very extreme government, you know, different militant groups this time. But, um, uh, you know, the Panjshir resistance has been effectively crushed at this point. And, you know, Taliban have very strong control. Yeah, and I think it's fair to say that the, the whole U.S. idea that they were still going to be able to help affect the situation in Afghanistan with over-the-horizon strikes has pretty much gone out the window, um, especially after, I think, the the, the sort of admission um, this week that the, uh, the strike that took place near Kabul airport actually probably didn't kill any terrorists. It just ended up killing 
what was it, 10 civilians, including seven children? Um, the numbers are unclear at this yeah. point, so... But it, it's fair to say that the US has had had to hold up its hands and pretty much say, yeah, we mucked up there. Um, and, that, and that probably, as you kind of said, um, is going to be the biggest issue now with, with the situation in Afghanistan. The fact that the US does not have boots on the ground, whether that be uniformed boots or, you know, more so the sort of intelligence sources on the ground, the US cannot really keep as close an eye on what's going on, particularly with ISIS um, and, and, and obviously Al-Qaeda potentially resurging as well. And so it, it it does mean, as we've discussed, you know, in previous episodes, that there is going to be an increase in, in, in the risk of terrorism, um, perhaps not now so much in Afghanistan itself, but uh, with the group potentially gaining strength and gaining followers outside of Afghanistan. Yeah, and we, we did see CIA threat assessments that, you know, various militant groups are not only interested in moving back into Afghanistan, but have done so. Um, and that's definitely a, a huge risk um, into the near future and, and may actually become a, a physical risk to the West. Um, as these groups sort of find Afghanistan to be a very um, welcoming base of operations um, and, and, and a place where they can operate without too much risk. And as we've seen, the U.S. ability for over-the-horizon airstrikes with the airstrike in Kabul that killed an aid worker um, yeah, isn't great. Mm. Uh, over-the-horizon airstrikes with, you know, a very low capability to conduct intelligence operations it's going to cause issues. And we saw that happen, and it's going to continue to happen into the future. Um, striking these targets, just it, it isn't going to be easy um, and definitely will give these groups room to operate inside of Afghanistan. You want to do the news now? Uh, yeah, I was just thinking we um, just quickly mention Carrier Strike Group as well, because um, we're kind of... I will let you handle that. Yeah. Um, so the carrier, the UK Carrier Strike Group uh, 21 has kind of reached the midway point now in its uh, round-the-world journey. Um, the ships have obviously stopped off in Japan um, and some of the surrounding uh, nations, and um, the crews are, well, to a certain extent, enjoying a little bit of uh, time ashore um, while the ships undergo maintenance ahead of the uh, return journey to the UK later this year. Um, we've seen uh, the US and, and British F-35s uh, exercising with the Japanese. Um, they've also engaged with uh, South Korea a few times. And um, I, I, have, I have to wonder what uh, China and uh, North Korea and, and, and some of the other nations in the region are sort of looking at um, the carrier and, and what they're thinking about it at the moment. Um, I think it's fair to say China was very... Uh, openly mocking the carrier strike group originally uh, prior to its travel through the South China Sea um, and, it, and and sort of into the Indo-Pacific region. Um, I don't know if you want to really sort of add anything to that. It just... Frank to China. Um, no, but to, to be more serious on that, um, China definitely does perceive that as potential risk. Obviously, the ability for more U.S. and U.K. combat aircraft to operate close to their you know, shores is definitely perceived by the Chinese, both the public and, and the you know, government, as you know, this, this risk to their sovereignty or their ability to project their sovereignty. Um, and you know, they, they view it as a continuing issue, especially as the U.K. continues to uh, develop its ability to project that carrier power um, with the Prince of Wales as well coming into service very soon. Um, and that's, that's definitely something that uh, you know, we're going to continue to see evolve. I, I think I've said the word evolve too many times this episode, but um, <laughs> right, this, this is a wait and see week, as, as we've definitely um, as we've definitely experienced, this is more of a week to look back at the things that have happened in the past and what's happening in the future. And, you know, as as things continue to evolve, um, we'll we'll see, you know, we'll see what happens basically. And we'll we'll try to take an assessment of of things as they're happening and and sort of, you know, the different events and the the public reactions and of course whatever private reactions we can get, um, which is definitely important. 
Yeah, and I think I think it's worthwhile we're on this topic of sort of Japan and the UK carrier strike group as well. Um, just sort of maybe discussing the uh, events of the, of the last two weeks um, with South Korea's submarine launch ballistic missiles. Um, and then obviously North Korea's train launched ballistic missiles because um, I think it's fair to say the, 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 the South Korean sub-launched missiles were perhaps more of a surprise to folks than anticipated. Um, it, it's been no secret that for a while South Korea has been developing its own sort of ballistic missile design. Um, but I think the test launch the other day kind of took people rather more surprise by surprise than than I was expecting certainly I wouldn't even say the the, the train launched one was the big one the the big one was was the cruise missile um which uh, basically the nature of a ballistic missile makes it very easy to detect post launch and um during you know its terminal phase super easy to detect to identify and not to shoot down per se but definitely easier with the number of anti-ballistic missile systems in the region to uh, lob a large number of interceptors at, at the few missiles that North Korea has and the even fewer nuclear warheads. Um, the real risk is, of course, that cruise missile, which is, A, a lot harder to identify, and if they're able to produce enough, you know, the potential for swarm attacks can definitely uh, interfere with any potential interception it's it's just a lot harder and the way that they've sort of phrased um the announcement of the missile calling it a strategic weapon um you know the, the western version of strategic pretty much always means nuclear um and if so the, if they're using that same terminology you know it means they intend to put a nuclear warhead on it which again just gives it this very large risk case and and it's definitely um an asymmetric attack vector that's different than their normal, you know, artillery and their um, ballistic missile capabilities. It's it's definitely a change. Yeah, and I, I think it's probably a, a change that perhaps wasn't expected because of all of the sort of negotiations that have been going on. Um, obviously, sort of in in, in the the months and and year and a bit since. Uh, Trump's visit to North Korea. Um, it's fair to say that sort of diplomacy between the North and South has expanded. Um, we, we've seen active efforts by the South Korean President Moon um, to try and sort of reach a, a mutual agreement with uh, Kim Jong Un, um, and to a certain extent, that seems to have had some progress. Obviously it's done nothing to prevent North Korea continuing to develop new weapons and, and, and continuing to expand its uh, ambitions, particularly, as you say, with, with nuclear weapons. Um, but I, th I think it's interesting that the timing of it all as well, um, particularly when South Korea's relations with Japan are not necessarily as good as they have been in the past. Um, and then obviously the... In, as we've mentioned earlier in this episode, the, the advent of, of, of the AUKUS agreement as well. Um, a part of me suspects that any future expansion of AUKUS will have to sort of weigh up what the diplomatic situation between South Korea and Japan looks like at that stage. Um, yeah, the relationship is a weird one, fraught with, you know, a thousand years of history and... They they do have these common enemies, which has driven them closer together in recent years. So you know we'll we'll see. We'll move on to the news stories and wrap it up. I believe. Gotcha. So um, this evening we have breaking news that a U.S. Navy T forty five C Goshawk um, jet trainer has crashed into a neighborhood in Texas. Uh, although both crew members um, are alive, they have both been hospitalized. Um, and although the pilot is believed to be uh, in a reasonably good condition, the backseat operator at the moment a condition is not known. Um, further information from the US Navy uh, is not yet uh, released. Kazakhstan has become the latest export customer for the Airbus A400M Atlas. 
Um, in a surprise announcement uh, earlier this week, Kazakhstan announced that they would be purchasing two of the aircraft um, for their air force. Um, I think it's fair to say that other than the countries that were originally involved with the A400 project, um, Malaysia and now Kazakhstan are the only sort of export customers uh, for the type. Um, it, it, it's interesting as well that Kazakhstan has, has picked the A400, um, particularly in light of the fact that a lot of Kazakhstan's equipment at the moment is of Russian origin. Um, whether that indicates anything about Kazakhstan's relations with the West, um, I, I, I don't know. It, I, I think it's probably probably indicates something's going on there, but I, I wouldn't say it's it's definitive of anything. Um, yeah, and that's that's definitely something to to watch for. Um, as previously mentioned in the episode as well, obviously we've had this uh, announcement of the AUKUS uh, agreement. For the time being, um, obviously the submarines are the primary aspect of that agreement. Um, and it remains to be seen whether there's additional projects in the pipeline that haven't been announced yet, or whether that is solely the sort of the basis of the agreement is around this nuclear-powered submarine for Australia. Um, I think it's it's going to be interesting to see what happens because obviously Australia was prepared to pay what was it ninety billion dollars for twelve diesel electric submarines uh, designed by the French. Uh, I think the question was whether or not they were ready to, they were ready to pay 50. I don't think they were ready to pay 90. Yeah, they might not have been prepared to pay 90. Um, but I think it will be interesting to see whether or not um, they end up with a similar number of nuclear powered submarines. I, I very much doubt it. I've heard people suggesting that in light of it being originally 12 diesel electric subs we're more likely to see eight nuclear powered subs um depends on how much financials they get that's going to be a huge question yeah and i think if it does end up being eight that will be quite an interesting little situation because obviously um the the comparison is always going to be with the uk um and obviously the uk has seven nuclear powered attack submarines um obviously it does also have four nuclear-powered ballistic missile submarines, but in terms of the actual attack submarine role, the UK obviously has uh, seven in total, if if, if you regard um, the Trafalgar and Astute class both at the moment. And obviously, once all the Trafalgars are gone and the Astutes are fully in service, there will be seven of the Astute class. Um, yes. Whether the design for the Australian... Uh, ends up being some sort of hybrid between the US Virginia class and the British Astute class remains to be seen. Um, I still think it's going to look somewhat more like the um, Los Angeles class. Uh, yeah, yeah, and, and, and that's entirely possible. And, and as I say, it's going to be very interesting to see in the next 18 months as they sort of thoroughly investigate the, the idea and, and, and potential designs. Um, and to be honest, I believe there is current you know there there is a chance australia may actually end up acquiring a few los angeles classes um to serve as either trainers or to serve as you know early test bed vehicles or test bed craft um to begin training that fleet or to begin training that crew because currently they do not have enough crew to even service eight larger nuclear submarines they they just don't yeah. um and so they definitely need to improve that first and I think it's going to be interesting as well to see whether or not this design ends up incorporating some of the sort of design processes that are being used for the uh, Columbia-class submarines that the US Navy is developing at the moment, and obviously uh, Britain's astute replacement, the uh, SSNR project uh, design as well, which um, I, th I think for me, the, the thing I'm wondering is how good a design is this going to be? And potentially, are we going to end up seeing a an Australian submarine that is more capable, perhaps, than 
the US and British designs that are currently in service. Um, in which case, will the US and Australia, uh, sorry, will the US and the UK help Australia develop a next generation submarine that they then potentially also end up building themselves at a later date? Who knows? Um, as as I say, the next eighteen months in particular are going to be uh, important in it, certainly in in laying out the design for this uh, this new submarine class, um, and, and and we'll see what happens. Um, China has obviously been very very vocal um, about its concerns with that. I think it's fair to say we haven't really heard much from other countries in the region. Um, Taiwan, Singapore, Indonesia, none of them have really said anything. Um, New Zealand has obviously been vocal about the fact that it doesn't want nuclear-powered submarines in its waters. Um, whether they are able to hold on to that uh, demand um, in the long term, I, I, I very much doubt they will. Um, I, I suspect that if, if the situation, particularly with China, continues to evolve in the direction that it has been heading I suspect New Zealand may well have to back off a little bit on that sort of uh, opinion on things but we shall have to wait and see and that is going to be the news for the week so um, thank you very much everyone for listening um, our next episode um, may be a week or so later than planned um, but we are hopefully going to be aiming for an episode roughly every two or three weeks now uh, moving forward um, particularly as we head into late 2021 um, obviously if, if the world catches fire as it seems to do fairly frequently we'll obviously uh, put in an episode uh, where we can to cover the news stories as they happen but thank you very much for listening uh, if you don't already, uh, go follow the uh, Bunker's Twitter account um, at the OSINT Bunker. Um, go catch us on YouTube if you fancy watching us uh, live on YouTube. Or alternatively, you can download the podcast from rss.com slash the OSINT Bunker. Um, and you can obviously listen to us on Spotify, Apple, Audible, Amazon Music and other platforms as well. Thank you.